Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And we are learning Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Yud Dalad. So we're into the story of Abraham, the beginning of the story of Abraham. And what we learned about last week was after Abraham followed Hashem's command to go to Eretz Israel, he was then, as Rashi puts it, tested by a famine, and he felt he had to go to Mitzrayim to survive the famine. And as he approached Mitzrayim, he said to Sarai that there is a danger that she will be taken because she is beautiful, and it will be beneficial for her to say that she is not Abraham's wife, but Abraham's sister. And then we read in Pasuk Yudalad, Vayihi kavo Avram Mitzrayma, and it was when Abraham was coming to Egypt, and the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And Rashi says there, uh, and I think this is fairly straightforward, at least uh, on the first level, Rashi spells out what the question is and what the answer is. It should have said, when they came to Mitzrayim, because there are two of them. Hello, Tali. Thank you for joining us. So we're in Perigubet, Pasik Yudalad. So it should say, when they came to Mitzrayim, because, ah, now I can see you, Sarah. Hello. There are two of them, Abraham and Sarah. So why does it say, Kavo Abraham Mitzrayim? Why does it say, Abraham came uh, in the singular? Ela says Rashi, but Lamad, it teaches, Shehitmin Ota Bateva. He hid her in a box. And because they demanded the tax, they opened the box, and they saw her. So this is, well, it's Rashi referring to the Midrash, that Sarah was hidden in a box as they came to Mitzrayim. And the Midrash goes on at length, and the, the Egyptian customs official said, well, we don't know what's in the box, so you've got to pay a certain tax and a certain duty, and Avram said, I'll pay whatever you want, and they insist on opening the box. So Rashi says, this is learned from the fact that the verb is in the singular. Avram came on his own. Now what's interesting is that Rashi had no problem with Pasuk Yud Aleph, where it said, when he came near to come to Egypt, he in the singular, similar, um, grammatical construction, and there it's in the singular. And we're not bothered by it when it's in the singular, because normally we, we actually use the singular a lot to refer to more than one person. I've often said the example of Vayavo Moshe Va'aron, El Paro. Moshe and Aaron came to Paro, and yet it should be Vayavo'u, they both came. But whenever one is more of a dominant player and the other is subsidiary or secondary, then the singular is used. That's standard in biblical Hebrew. The Malbin makes this point. And therefore, in Posecured Aleph, Abraham is the guy making the journey. Sarai is, if you like, a passenger. And that's why it says, So why does Rashi get bothered by the same singular use of the verb in Posecured Dalad? And the answer suggested is that it makes sense in Posecured Aleph that Avram's going to Mitzrayim, and there are other people with him, but Avram's the main um, leader of the group. However, in Pasuk Yudalit, it makes no sense if we don't talk about Sarai. 
Because after all, she's there in the second half of the Pasuk. The Egyptians saw the woman. So clearly, she's a major part of the story. In fact, she's almost the essential part of the story. So she can't be included in a singular verb unless there is a Midrashic explanation as to, in a sense, she wasn't there. So Rashi brings the Midrash to say, yes, two of them were coming, but on the surface, in the open, only one was coming, and that's what is meant by Vayehi Kavolt Mitzrayma. So the next Pasuk says, Vayiru Ota Sere Paro, the officers of Paro saw her, the Halaluha Ota El Paro, and they praised her, literally to Paro, Rashi's going to question that, the Tuka Haisha Beit Paro, and the, one, the woman was taken to the house of Paro. So basically exactly what Avram feared would happen, happened, except he feared that had it been known that he was her husband, he would have been killed. And as we'll see from the next verse, he's not killed. But nevertheless, she is taken. Says Rashi on Pasuk Tetvav, Vihalaluha, uh, vi, sorry, Vihalalu Ota El Paro, Hilaluha Beinehem, they praised her between themselves, Lomar to say, Haguna Zu Lamelacht. This one is fitting for the king. So Rashi understands the phrase, Vihalaluha Ota El Paro not that they praised her to Paro, literally they went to Paro and say, listen, here's a nice looking woman, but rather they praised her as fitting for Paro. So El Paro, the El is not to be taken, meaning to, but to be taken as appropriate for. So why does Rashi say this? So I saw a couple of answers that number one, had it said they praised her to Paro, the standard expression for doing something like that to a king is the halalu ota lifnei paro. Now, I didn't check how consistent that is, um, but I believe with the people who said it, that it's more appropriate if they were praising her to paro. If they said, Mr. Paro, we think she is a suitable woman for you, the, the lushan, the expression would have been lifnei paro, and it isn't. So that's one possibility. Another possibility, which I actually uh, think is uh, a better explanation, is that if you look in Pasuk Tetvav, it sounds like the, there's three parts to Pasuk Tetvav. They saw her, they praised her to Paro, and then she was taken into the house of Paro. And it sounds like the people doing, the, the, sorry, the action of seeing her and the action of praising her is one at the same time. And then subsequently something else happens, she is taken into the house of Paro. But it sounds like the first two parts of the Pasuk happen together. They see her, they praise her to Para. Well, if they saw her, where were they seeing her? Up the border when they took her out of the box. So at that point, they're not, Para's nowhere near. So if we say that the seeing her and praising her are happening around the same time, it's part of the same action, then we understand that Para's nowhere near. They're not praising her to Para, but they're praising her as fitting for Para, as Rashi says. Let's continue. Pasuk Tet Zayin, Avram Heitiv Ba'avura. And to Abraham, he did good because of her. And he had, this is Abraham, as a result of all the, the, the goodness that he was given, he had flocks and cattle and donkeys and servants and maidservants and asses and camels. Now, Rashi only has um, 
one thing to say, or possibly two, depending on your version of the text of Rashi. He adds the word paro. Now, by the way, I don't know about your versions, I have in brackets after that, Natan lo matanot, he gave him presents. We'll come to that in a minute. But Rashi has added the word paro. The first three words of the Pasuk are Ula Avram Hetiv Ba'avura. To Avram, he did good for her sake or because of her. And the way Rashi reads it, Ula Avram Hetiv Paro Ba'avura. And Paro did good to him for her sake. So, what has Rashi done and why? So, although Rashi doesn't use the expression in this case, this is an example of what Rashi often calls a Mikra Katsar, an abbreviated verse. And what's abbreviated from the verse is the subject of the verb is not specified. And in many cases, Rashi will say, this is the Mikra Katsar, it doesn't tell you who did the verb. I, Rashi, will tell you who did the verb, who did the action. So if you look, you know, Hebrew, like other classical languages, incorporates the pronoun as part of the verb. Hetiv means he did good, but it doesn't tell us who the he is. So point one, this is an abbreviated verse. The subject is not clear, so Rashi has to tell us who the subject is, because otherwise we might not have known. But in this case, actually, it's more pressing, because the subject is somebody who hasn't been mentioned until, oh, we know who Paro is, but they're not the subject of the previous verbs. So in Tetvav, Vayiru Oto, who saw her? Sare Paro, the officers of Paro. Bihalalu Ota, who praised her? The same people, the officers of Paro. The woman was taken. Now that's a passive verb, so we don't know who took her. The, the Torah is not talking about who took her, it just says the woman was taken. So now the subject of the verb hetiv is somebody who hasn't been a subject of a verb, um, I would actually say, at all, ever, in the Chumash, it just occurs to me. We've never seen Paro do anything, ever. So this is the first time Paro does something. So because the previous subject of the verbs were other people, it's even more pressing for Rashi to tell us that the person who is the subject of hetiv is Paro. Now Rashi knows it's Paro because it's the only person really who could be responsible for being so uh, beneficial and so benign to uh, Abraham. But because it's not clear, Rashi has to tell us what it means. Now, the, we have in brackets, Natan lo matanot. I'm not quite sure of the uh, integrity of that part of the text. Doesn't, so my book doesn't actually give a clue uh, why it's in brackets, but presumably that means that some versions have it and some versions don't have it. And if we do have that, then the question that Rashi's answering is, what, in what way was Paro good to Abraham? And also, I suppose, how does the first part of the verse link with the second part of the verse? So he was good to Abraham. And then it says, Abraham had all this stuff. Now, I know it's pretty obvious that the two are connected, but maybe if we didn't have Rashi and we didn't have this tradition, we wouldn't have seen it quite so obvious. Abraham, uh, Paro was good to Abraham. What was, how, what way is he good? Maybe he's good because he didn't kill him. Oh, and also, Abraham had lots of stuff. Abraham was a wealthy man. Rashi, with he says, Natan lo matanot, joins those two parts together to say the being good is the cause of how Abraham having all this stuff. That's all that Rashi has to say on Tet Zion. Let's go on to Yud Zion. And can I remind people, please, you're very, very welcome to ask questions, to make points whenever you wish. Just unmute and talk. 
וינגע השם את פרו. פר, uh, השם פלייגד פרו, נגעים גדולים, great plagues, ואת ביתו, and his house, על דבר שרי, on the, because of שרי, or Rashi's going to give us a different translation, אשת אברהם, the wife of אברהם. So Paro gets plagues, not just plagues, נגעים גדולים. It's also worth pointing out that his house, Rashi will explain what that means, also gets plagues, um, but there's a, there seems to be a break. ונגה השם את פרו נגעים גדולים, ואת ביתו. Sounds like it's only פרו who gets נגעים גדולים, and the house gets plagued, but not necessarily נגעים גדולים. So bear those points in mind. No, let's see one other thing, because Rashi actually doesn't comment on Pasuk Yudchet, so I want to read Pasuk Yudchet now. So פרו uh, gets plagued, and the response of that in Yudchet is, ויקרא פרו לאברהם, פרו called אברהם, ויאמר, and he said, מה זאת עשית לי? What is this that you have done for me? למה לא הגדת לי? Why did you not tell me? כי אשתך היא, that she is your wife. Okay, so back to Rashi on Yud Zayin. V'yanaga Hashem v'gomer. V'makat ra'atan laka. He was plagued with ra'atan, which the Gemara tells us is a skin disease. It's like shechin. Uh, it's like boils, but it's worse. It's the worst type of shechin there is. But the result of that, because it's basically his skin was all falling off him, which is pretty gross. Shahatashmish kasher lo. So sexual relations were hard for him. So now, uh, first of all, we understand that Hashem is saving Sarai from a horrible fate, that uh, basically she was there to be raped, and Hashem arranged it so that Parah wasn't able to do that, number one. Number two, Rashi has explained to us what Ra'atan is, and in particular, although Rashi hasn't spelled this out, he's explaining what Naga'im Gedolim is. Now, why does, how does Rashi know? Why does Rashi feel it's relevant to say that the result of this plague on Paro is Shatashmish Kashelo? The relations were hard for him. And the answer probably is, and this is why we read Pasuk Yudchet, because Paro immediately knows what he's done wrong. And that's quite remarkable. Uh, it's a great tzachut to know why you're being punished. At Halavai, we should always know why we're being punished. We could do teshuva much more effectively. Paro seems to know. So Paro gets plagued, and he immediately says to Abraham, what have you done? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I re Paro immediately realizes that he has done something wrong by taking somebody's wife. And how does he know that? So putting all these pieces together, Rashi says it must be that the Naga'im Gadolim, the big plagues that affected Paro, indicated to Paro what he was trying to do wrong. Trying to do, because he didn't actually do it, but trying to do wrong. It's also the case, um, I, to be honest, I just noticed this now, that the last two words of Pasuk Yudzayin also point in the same direction. That it stresses that Sarai was Eshet Avram, implying that that's the problem. And the, 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 the fate that uh, Paro is feeling, is finding, is related to that problem. That he is trying to have relations with somebody who's the wife of somebody else. And he can't because of the plagues. It's also the case, one more point, all leading in the same direction, the point I made earlier, that Paro gets Nagi'im Gadolim and the house gets something else. And you, as I said, because the, 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 the verse splits Paro from the household. So it sounds like Paro gets something more personal, as Rashi explains, and the household gets something else. Now, 
it's time to talk about the household, or literally the house. So Rashi says, Ketargumo, you understand this like the Targum does, Al Anash Beite, on the people of his house. And then it says, also in brackets, by the way, um, this one says Rashi Yashan, an old version of Rashi, Umidrasho, the Midrash is, Larabot Katalav Amudov Bekelav, to include its walls, its pillars, and its vessels. Now, there's a fascinating point here, and it really goes to the heart of what is the difference between Midrash and Pshat. And actually, the next comment of Rashi is going to highlight the same tension. If you say that the word Beito means household, the members of his household, is that more Pshat or is that more Midrash than if you say it means the walls of the house? And the answer is, well, Rashi makes clear, that to say it's the household is the Pshat, and to say it's the walls of the house is the Midrash. Why do I find this interesting? Because literally, the walls of the house is a better translation. It doesn't say household. It doesn't say the men of the house. The Targum says that because that's what it, Rashi says it has to mean. But literally, you, if you say the house got plagued, then it's the walls and the pillars and the kalim. So here is an example. And I remember Nechama Leibovitz saying this point, and while and I had this clip to sit in a shear of hers, I remember her saying this very point, that what sometimes is called the pshat is less faithful to the literal meaning of the text. Some people call pshat literal meaning of the text. It's not. The literal meaning of the text, there is a Hebrew word, that's mashma'ut. But pshat is the simplest meaning of the text, not necessarily the literal meaning of the text. So here, the pshat is not literal. The pshat says, Bayit means the people of the house. The Midrash, which goes into a story which is perhaps more um, uh, obscure, perhaps a bit more, I'm trying to find the right word because I don't want to denigrate the Midrash, but perhaps more um, out of the ordinary, that is to say that the walls of the house got afflicted. But Rashi is clear to call that the Midrash because it's not the simplest meaning of the text. Um, it is more faithful to the literal meaning, which is why he brings it because he's probably not satisfied to say that by it means household, because that's not what the word means. The word house means house, but it's not the simplest meaning to say that the walls themselves got afflicted. So the next comic of Rashi happens to bring out this same contrast very nicely. Al-Davar Sarai. Now, Al-Davar Sarai is usually translated as because of Sarai. So Paro gets plagued Aldavar Sarai, because of Sarai. That's all fine. That would be a good way of translating it. However, that's not what Rashi says. Rashi says, and he doesn't say this is Midrash as opposed to Peshat. He just gives it as the interpretation. Alpi Dibura, on the mouth of her word. So he's taking the word Devar to mean, as it literally does, the word of Sarai, not because of Sarai, which is the idiomatic translation, but the word of Sarai. What does that mean? Continues Rashi. Omeret Lamalach, she says, she, Sarai, said, that's the, her word, to the Malach, to the angel, Hach, smite the Humaka, and he smote. So, Aldavar Sarai, Rashi understands to take Devar literally. So perhaps it's not quite the same as the previous example, because Rashi will say this is pshat, even though he doesn't have to say that. Rashi has said many times, Lobati Eilat Pshuto Shomikra, I Rashi, I'm only going to give you pshat. So this is what Rashi gives us, so it's pshat. 
But from our point of view, we might assume this is not the way we would translate Aldavar Sarai. However, it is the word, it is the translation which is most faithful to the actual word. The actual word is davar, and the word davar means word, means what is said. So Aldavar Sarai means on the word of Sarai, that is the more literal translation, sorry, the more faithful, not literal, faithful translation. So how is it the word of Sarai? Sarai says, she speaks to the Malach and says, smite this one, smite this one. Now, why does Rashi not go for the simpler explanation? And the answer to that is probably because it's so obvious that he's plagued because of Sarai. What's happened before and what's happened in the next verse makes it 100% clear that the plagues are on account of Sarai. And that being the case, the Torah doesn't need to say Aldavar Sarai to say that he was plagued because of what he did to Sarai. Therefore, it must mean something else. And that's why Rashi says it means by the word of Sarai. So let's move on. So we'll read again just for continuity. Parah called to Avram and he said, Mazot and what have you done? What's this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? And then he goes on to say, Why did you say she is my sister? And I took her to me, Isha, as a wife. I'm not sure they plan to get married, but to a uh, uh, some sort of wife relationship. And now, behold, here is your wife, take and go. So Rashi says, Rashi has got a uh, comment, and he spells out very clearly what the question is. There is a contrast here between this incident and a similar incident. So when else did Abraham say that Sarah was his sister? So you're all muted, but I'm sure you're all nodding and thinking about the answer and knowing the answer. It's when in Parshat Vayera, he went to uh, stay with Abimelech in the land of the Pelishtim, also in a famine. And he also did this Sarah is my sister trick. And he also led to a, a messy situation. And Abimelech took Sarai and Sarah and then gave her back. And now Arashi says on Pasuk Yudtet, Kach Velech, Lo Abimelech. This is not like Abimelech. Sha'amar Lo, who said to him, Abimelech said to Abraham, Hinei Arzi Lefanecha, Behold, my land is before you. In other words, stay wherever you want. Stay in my land with the Pelishtim for as long as you want. We're all friends now. We've resolved the issue with my mistaking your wife for your sister. After all, you told me she was your sister and I've given her back and everyone's fine and you can stay. We're mates now. Please stay or you can stay in my land. But Paro says, off you go. So Rashi, as he often does, sees something which is similar but different. And if it's similar but different, we need to understand why. And so he says, um, uh, it's not like Abimelech who said to him, Behold, my land is before you. But he said to him, Go, and do not stand, i.e., do not stay. Because the Midrash puts into the words or into the mouth of Paro a comment which is made often about Egyptians that the Egyptians are immersed in immorality. 
They are a people who don't follow the rules, particularly when it comes to sexual relations. Shne'emar, and when, when this is stated, as it often is in the Gemara and the Midrash, it quotes the following posit from Yechezkel, which actually has halachic import. Zirmat susim zirmatam. The discharge of horses is their discharge, their meaning a stream. And it's referring to um, semen and the Egyptians, they have relations like horses. And Rashi on that passage in Yechezkel says that horses have relations more often than any other animal. And that's why that's the message when the prophet Yechezkel compares Egyptians to horses and the discharge of the horses like the discharge of the Egyptians, he's talking about their sexual immorality. So uh, this explains why Paro says, don't stay around in Mitzrayim. And it fits in with other things that are said about the Egyptians in other places. So it's part of a bigger picture, but it explains, it answers Rashi's question, why Paro doesn't say, hang around like Avimelech does in a parallel situation. And the explanation is that the Egyptians are dangerous. And even now they know that she is your wife. It's not good to stay around because they won't respect that relationship. Exactly as uh, Abraham said to Sarai when they were approaching Mitzrayim, exactly uh, as Rashi explained in, on his comment in Pasuk Yud Aleph, in his third explanation of Pasuk Yud Aleph, why uh, Abraham said to Sarai, ki isha Behold, now I know that you are a beautiful woman. And Rashi explained why it was, Abraham said this now, and he gave three explanations. And the third was, because we are approaching the land of Egypt, you will be in danger. And that is exactly what Paro confirmed. So now we come to Pasuk Kaf. V'yetzav alav paro anashim, paro commanded on him men, v'yishalchu oto, now I'm going to translate it as we normally would, shalach, he sent away him, v'et ishto and his wife, v'et kol asher lo, and all that was to him. He sent away his wife, uh, him and his wife, and all that was him. Now, Rashi says uh, two things in this verse, which all point in the same direction. So first of all, the Yitzav Alav, he commanded on him, Al Odotav, um, about him. So this Rashi, I think, I think can be put into the category of a fairly straightforward Rashi, although I'm always nervous about saying that. The Yitzav Alav, he commanded on him. It doesn't make sense. Alav is not the preposition that comes after the Yitzav. So Rashi turns around Alav, he translates Alav as Al Odotav, about him. So he commanded, Paro commanded, doesn't say who he commanded, but presumably his uh, people who did this sort of thing, about, um, about Abraham. And he commanded him, or to send him and to guard him. And let's look at the next word of Rashi, on the word, which I deliberately translated as he sent them away. Says Rashi, this is like the Targum translates it as and they accompanied him. Levaya is, uh, we talk about Levaya meaning a funeral, but actually it means the accompanying of the person who's died. And the word Levaya doesn't actually relate necessarily to funerals at all. It means the act of accompanying. So Rashi, using the Targum, translates for Yeshalchu not as he sent them away, 
but as he told the guards, the, the officers, to accompany him. Now, both these comments of Rashi are in necessary in order to fit into a paradigm. And the paradigm is that Paro is being nice to Abraham. Why does Rashi say Paro is being nice to Abraham? Because that's what the Pasuk says. First of all, before Paro knew that Sarah was his sister, sorry, was his wife, he gave him lots of stuff. That was in Pasuk Tetzayim. Paro gave to Abraham all this flocks and cattle and cheer, et cetera, et cetera. And we see no indication that he took it back. And in fact, we can be sure that he didn't take it back because when, Paro, when Abraham leaves Mitzrayim, he is still, as we're about to see, laden with stuff. So Paro didn't take the stuff back. Furthermore, in Pasuk Yutet, Paro is not um, punishing Abraham. And in a sense, he could have done. First of all, he's an absolute ruler. And second of all, Abraham has, if you like, misrepresented the situation, which has caught Paro in a difficult position. So it would have been possible for Paro to punish Abraham. He hasn't done that. And he's saying, Kach and according to Rashi in Pasuk Yotet, he's saying, Kach take your wife and go for your own safety. That being the case, it doesn't make sense in Rashi's uh, explanation if uh, in Pasuk Kaf, Paro is being all um, hostile and brutal towards Abraham and commanding people just to send him away. That's why Rashi, first of all, says that the command was, L'shalcha u'l'shomro, to send him and to guard him, that's a positive thing. And Rashi turns round the Ishalchu, which sounds like send him away into something quite different. The Alviu, as the Targum says, to accompany him. So in order, seems to me, in order for Paro's behavior in Pasuk Kaf to be consistent with Paro's behavior in Pasuk Yotet, where he says to Abraham, why have you done this to me? And he doesn't punish him. And in a sense, compatible to Paro's behavior in Pasuk Tet Zion, where he loads Paro, uh, Abraham up with all these goods, which he doesn't take back, Rashi has to turn around the style of Pasuk Kaf, which sounds like Paro is being hostile and saying that he is not. So that concludes Pasuk Yudbet, which is the, uh, sorry, Perak Yudbet. Can I ask a question? Yes, please. But it's also possible to interpret the Pasuk in as the opposite, as like Paro being hostile towards Abraham? Um, where? So like in, back up, if I forgot which Pasuk it was, but there was like in the Tame Mikra, there was a break between um, like saying by, like um, when, it was list, when it was listing Abraham's wealth. Mm -hmm. So like it wasn't necessarily Para being nice to him and that being correlated with the wealth. It could have just been that Abraham was wealthy. Okay, so that, that fits in with Rashi's comment on Tetzayim, the one in brackets, Natan lo matanot. Uh, mm -hmm. And I explained that Rashi holds that the two parts of the Pasuk are related. So, so, but if we were to say that it wasn't related, like we could say later on when Para was sending him off, it was just like a get out of here, like I don't want okay. anything. Oh, you're right. So you could read Tetzayim as, first of all, you could split, and you're right, the, the trop does split, Ula Avram Hetifa Avura from Vayhilot Sonobakar. So you could take quite a radical reinterpretation. Uh, this is not Rashi, obviously, and say that Paro was, was good to pay, uh, Abraham, and you know, maybe I'm just suggesting good by not killing him. And by the way, Abraham had lots of stuff. And then in Pasuk Yotet, Abraham, uh, Paro says, go. And in Pasuk Kaf, Paro sends him away. Now, Rashi avoids all that. Rashi, in my opinion, turns around, uh, interprets Tet Zion and Yotet and Kaf in a completely different direction. 
And I think it might be because of Yud Gimel Bet, we're going to get to in two verses time, which make clear that Avraham had lots and lots of stuff. And even if you don't say that that stuff was given to him by Paro, yeah, Avraham certainly came out of the Egypt experience on top. And he had all this wealth. And uh, in a few other places, I'm not sure if the Chumash itself or just Rashi, talks about the wealth that he got from Paro. It might just be Rashi. But it seems to me that um, even if Paro Rashi were you know, open to the other possibility, Pasuk Bet that we're coming to seals the deal and says the only reason that Paro came, sorry, Abraham came out with all his wealth, the only way we can explain that is if Abraham, sorry, Paro were being nice to him, which is the way Rashi explains Pasuk Okay, thank you for the comment. So Abraham went up from Mitzrayim, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him towards the Negev. Um, I must just point out, um, this is not in Rashi, but it's just so exciting. This is also in the Chamelevitz, who compares the order of this verse with Pasuk Dalad, Perik Bet Pasuk Dalad. So this is not Rashi, and normally I don't spend time on not Rashi, but this is just so interesting. In Perik Bet Pasuk Dalad, Vayelach Avraham Kasher Dibet Alav Hashem, Vayelach Ito Lot, sorry, sorry, I'm looking at Hay, Hay is the one. Vayelach Avraham Et Sarai Ishto, Ve'et Lot Benachiv, Ve'et Kol Ruchusham. The order of the party was Avraham, Sarai, Lot, property. But in our Pasuk, Yud Gimel Aleph, the order is Abraham and his wife, property, and Lot. Lot is now further apart from the uh, Abraham and Sarai couple. And what's in place, what's in the way, is the stuff, is the property. And you can even think of this quite literally, that um, Abraham's in the front, Sarai's behind Abraham looking at Abraham. Then you've got the property. Then you've got Lot. What's Lot focusing on? What can he see in his vision? He can see the stuff, the property. And that introduces the split between Abraham and Lot, which is about to happen, which is all about Lot's need for more stuff, as we will see. But that's not for now. Uh, and in fact, it's not for Rashi at all. So Rashi is bothered by the word Hanegba. Now, we've had the word Hanegba before, and we had it in Pasuk Tet of Yud Bet. Hanegba means to the south, right? Abraham was going to the south. And Rashi explained there in Pasuk Tet that Abraham came from the north. Rashi doesn't spell it out, but if he'd come from Mesopotamia via the Fertile Crescent, sorry, that way to you, then he would have arrived in Israel from the north and he's heading to the south, which Rashi said was Yerushalayim. And now it says he's also going Hanegba, to the south. So Rashi thinks you might be confused. And Rashi says, He's going to the south of Eretz Israel. Not that he's going south, but he's going to the place in Israel, which is called the south. So before in Pasuk Tet, Hanegba meant he's going in a southerly direction. Now Rashi quite legitimately says the word Hanegba can mean two things. It can mean in a southerly direction, or it can mean towards the place in Israel, which is called the Negev, towards the place which is the south. 
But if he's coming from Egypt, which is further south, he's actually going north. So he's not going southerly, he's going northerly, but he's going to the south of Israel. And that is what Rashi says here. As we, as he explained, or as the, sorry, as the Pasuk said above, in Pasuk Tet, as we just said, where there Rashi says to the south. So I suppose it goes like this. In Pasuk Tet, the word, the meaning in a southerly direction and to the south of Israel happened to be the same thing because he was going in a southerly direction to the south of Israel. Now he's going to the south of Israel, but in a northerly direction. So Rashi now splits the two meanings. There, and Rashi says, uh, Rashi said there that he was going to the south, to Yerushalayim, to Ha Hamaria. Says Rashi, nevertheless, when he was going from Egypt to the land of Canaan, he was going from south to north. So Rashi is saying what I said just a moment ago, and perhaps I jumped the gun, I should have left it for Rashi to say. Rashi's spelling out that here, Hanegba does not mean going to the south, because it tells us explicitly that he was going. Um, from to the north he was going. Why? Because Egypt is in the south of Israel. As is proved in the journeys, when in Pasha Mata, sorry, Masay, when we read of the journeys of B'nai Israel, they leave Israel, Egypt and they go north, or it doesn't actually say that explicitly, but Rashi thinks we learn it from there. Um, and Ubegula Gevule Haaretz, so there in Parshat, um, it's also Masai. I think it's Masai. Um, where they lead, lead where, where the Torah describes the borders of Eretz Israel, there it's quite clear that Egypt is on the southern border of Eretz Israel. So if you leave Egypt and you go to Eretz Israel, you are going north. So what is meant by Hanegba? It means to the south of Eretz Israel. Then we have Pasuk Bet. Avram kaved ma'od. Avraham was very heavy. With cattle and with silver and with gold. And Rashi says two words, Ta'un Masa'ot. He was bearing burdens. He was carrying things. He was laden with burdens. I think it's probably the best translation. Ta'un Masa'ot, laden with burdens. And again, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is a straightforward Rashi. And I deliberately translated the, the verse in a literal sense, which makes no sense. Abraham was very heavy. Does that mean he'd eaten a lot in Mitzrayim and needed to lose weight? Certainly not. Very heavy means he was carrying heavy stuff. And Rashi tells us that's what it means, because otherwise we wouldn't be quite sure what it means when the Torah says Abraham was very heavy. Moving on to Pasuk Gimel. He went to his journeyings. And if that doesn't make sense, that's deliberate, because we're going to need Rashi to explain it. Minegev from the south, the Ad Beit El, to Beit El, El Hamakoma Shahayasham Ahalo, the Tchila, to where his tent was at the beginning, in other words, where he first pitched his tent when he arrived in Israel. And there it was, Bain Beit El, Ubain Ha'ai, between Beit El and Ai. So that's really a throwback to what we were told when Abraham arrived in Eretz Israel. And it was in Pasuk Chet of the previous parak. So Rashi is 
feels the need to explain to us what Vayelech Lamasa Av means. And as I said, he went to his journeyings, does need some explanation. Says Rashi, when he returned from Egypt to the land of Canaan, he went and stayed the night in the inns, if you like, in the lodging places, in the same places that he had spent the night on his going to Egypt. This teaches you a proper way to behave. A person should not change their lodging houses. Let's start with the last bit. So Rashi says, this is telling you, we learn from Avram's example, a bit of derecheretz. Now, I think this really refers to a world that we are not so familiar with. When we go on long journeys, what's a long journey? You get on a plane and you get off a plane many, many hours later. When they went on long journeys, until relatively recently, an essential part of the journeying process was places to stay overnight, because a journey would very frequently take a number of days, and you needed a place to stay. And that was, there was a network of hostels, which don't serve the same purpose today, but you needed to have a place to stay. And says the Gemara, based on this, the Gemara in Erechim says, that you should not change your lodgings. As you go from place to place, as you repeat the same journey, you should um, stay in the same lodging. And if you don't, it's an insult to the innkeeper. And it doesn't look good for the traveler either. It looks like he's got something to, he's running away from, from the place he stayed before. So the Gemara says it is a good practice, and what's called here derecheret, not to change one's lodgings. So how is Rashi translating Vayelech Lamasa? And the answer is, he's reading the Lamad as if it's a bet. He went in his journeys. He went in the same journey that he went before. Actually, the word masa'ah is a little bit of a problem, um, but it's a, the same problem we have famously in the last Pasuk of uh, Sefer Shemot, um, where it says the cloud was on the Mishkan v'chol masa'ehem, in all their journeys. Now, if you think about that for one moment, at the end of, Peret, uh, of Sefer Shemot, we had it just a couple of weeks ago, the Mishkan is built, everything's very exciting, and the cloud comes and settles on the Mishkan. And the Pasuk says the cloud was on the Mishkan in all their journeys. That's actually a problem. Why is that a problem? Because the cloud wasn't on the Mishkan when they were journeying. The cloud folded up and went ahead of them to show them the way. And it only went back onto the Mishkan when they stopped to show that the Mishkan was operational again and Hashem's presence was manifest there because of the cloud. But Rashi says there, Masa'ah can mean journey, but can also mean stopping place. Because when you stop, you stop in order to start again. So the stopping place is really a starting place for the next part of the journey. It's, it's a beautiful idea which can be used as a vort in, in all sorts of ways that our, ideally our stopping should actually be starting as well. So the, the same interpretation here is given to Masa'ah. I've translated it as journey. Masiah is to move. But Rashi says it refers to the places where he stopped. But that's okay because Masa'av can also mean the stopping places because, as I said, when you stop, it's in order to stop. So Vayelech Masa'av, it means he went in the same journeys or in the same stopping places as he had gone before. Now, there's a slight problem with that. If I'm reading it as if Rashi reads the Lamad as a bet, the problem is it doesn't have a bet. It has a Lamad. 
So Rashi brings another explanation. And the second explanation is, another explanation, on his return, he paid his debts. So he went deliberately to each hostel where he had been on the way before. The second explanation is not changing that. But he went for a particular purpose, not just because it was derecheretz, not to change your lodging, but because he needed to revisit each place in order to pay the debt that he incurred on the way south when he was going to Egypt. And that would maintain the Lamad. He went for the sake of the journeying or for the stopping places. He went to them, but for them, which is also a Lamad. He went for their sake. Uh, the muscular David, who's, as, as you might have heard, is my go-to commentator for why there's two explanations. So I'm basing what I'm saying now on the muscular David, that according to the first explanation, there's a problem because it's got a lamb instead of a bet. According to the second explanation, there's a problem because which means the, the, the main thing is missing. If he's going to pay his debts, why doesn't it say he's going to pay his debts? That's the muscular David's question on the second explanation. And since neither explanation really answers all the questions. That's why Rashi brings two explanations. Let's just talk about this second idea for a moment. Abraham had to repay his debts. Now, why couldn't he pay his debts on the way? Why did he ask for credit, which is not necessarily what a model leader or or a tzaddik should do? So there's two things you can say. Either Abraham had to ask for credit, like everyone had to ask for credit in those days, because what was the situation? There was a famine. That was why he was moving in the first place. So everyone was in financial straits and they couldn't necessarily pay their debts. That's answer number one. Answer number two, and we find this in some commentators say, has for Shalom to say that Abraham didn't have enough money. Abraham was blessed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to have lots of money, even in the time of famine. But he didn't want to show off. He didn't want to show that he was in such a better state than everybody else who was suffering in the famine. So he didn't pay his debts. He took credit. He put it on the tab with the intention that he will pay on the way back. Personally, I'm a little bit bothered by that. I'm a little bit bothered by that. Maybe I don't fully understand the idea that it's the righteous thing to do not to pay when you can pay. But anyway, that is what some people say explaining this comment. And then finally, Rashi has to say on the word minegev, uh, because the third word of the Pasuk, Rashi says, Eretz Mitzrayim bedroma shall Eretz Canaan. Mitzrayim was in the south of Canaan, as Rashi said previously, but here he's got a different reason for saying it. So in the previous Pasuk, it said, uh, sorry, in Pasuk Aleph, he said he was going Hanegba, which means to the Negev. And now it says he's going Minegev, from the Negev. Now you might get confused. He's going to the Negev or he's going from the Negev. But you shouldn't get confused because Rashi is explaining that. Sorry, the Sarah, there's two of you. It's just a bit strange. <laughs> yeah, are you, have you logged in again for the second time? I, it just crashed. So okay. I logged back in, but it's going to um, go away in a few seconds. Okay. Ah, so the first one I can see is frozen and then the second one is yeah. live. Okay. It's going to go right. in a sec. Right. Um, I'm learning all the oddities of Zoom as, as the whole world is. Okay. So now Rashi sees min Negev from the Negev. Rashi has to explain why it says from the Negev. So Rashi points out that it uh, means from the south because Mitzrayim was in the south. Now, Pasuk Dalad is direct continuation of Pasuk Gimel. 
And it says in Pasuk Gimel that he came back to the place where he had pitched his tent in the beginning. I've just noticed, by the way, that Ahalo, again, is like it was in, uh, I think, Pasuk Vav of the previous one. No, Pasuk Chet. Um, it's spelt Ahala, meaning her tent, with a hay on the end, but it's pronounced Ahalo with a Cholam, meaning his tent. And Rashi in Pasukhet talked about that. He doesn't talk about it again, perhaps because he feels he's already explained it. He meant he pitched her tent first before his tent. Maybe he feels he's already explained it. That's why he doesn't need to explain it again. Now, Pasuk Dalat says, so he came to this place, El Makom HaMizbeach, to the place of the Mizbeach, Asha Asa Sham Berishona, which he had made there originally. And Avraham called out in the name of Hashem, which, by the way, we've seen before, Rashi understands as Avraham prayed. He doesn't. Now, Rashi has two ways of reading this clause. And I'm also I'm going to go out on a limb here. I didn't see this anywhere inside, but I think he gives two explanations simply because this is a verse which has no machria. You can't prove it's one way or the other. But Rashi gives two understandings of the role of the clause by Yekra Sham Abraham B'Shem Hashem. So Rashi says on Pasuk Dalet, Asher Asa Sham B'Rishona, V'asher Kara Sham Avram B'Shem Hashem. What's Rashi done? He's added a Vav. Um, V'asher Kara, or rather, sorry, he's changed by Yekra into V'asher Kara. How does Rashi understand by Yekra Sham Abraham B'Shem Hashem? as all part of the description of the past when he had built the altar and had called out in the name of Hashem. So Rashi, Avram says, so Rashi understands, Avram goes back to the place where he had built the altar and he previously, and when he built that altar, had called out in the name of Hashem, which means he's not calling out in the name of Hashem again. Now, I think even though it sounds like it, there's a new thing happening, he went to the Mizbeach, which he had uh, made there originally, comma, and the trot, the, uh, the, the uh, Tama Mikra implies so. And he did something new. He called out in the name of Hashem. But Rashi doesn't accept that, although he's about to offer it as an alternative, because the Asher Kara is a totally legitimate reading of a past tense verb. That to put in Vayikra means, and he had called, or and he had previously called, is it's fine. It's not playing around with the Peshat. That is a legitimate translation. However, there's also the alternative translation, which Rashi then says, the And also you can say, And he called now in the name of Hashem. So that part, that clause, can either be part of the Asher, which, which had happened previously, or it's a new clause, actually, we would call it a new sentence in its own right about something that happened now. And the reason I say that Rashi is not machria between them, he can't reach a conclusion. The reason I think Rashi's saying that is because of Rashi's words. The gum yesh lomar. And you can also say, not dva acher, not midrashu pshat or anything like that, but you can say this and you can say that. And I think what Rashi means is literally, you can read it this way, or you can read it that way. Now, according to the second explanation, Abraham called out in the name of Hashem, i.e. Abraham Davin. So the Mephoshim asked, so why is he davening? 
what's happened since his original davening. So the original davening was to thank Hashem for what he'd been given, for the blessings. No new blessing has been given. So the answer to that would be that he's thanking Hashem for all the property that he's got when he came out of Egypt. Because we know that the whole context of what's going on here uh, and the argument he's about to have with Lot is about their multitude of flocks. They've got so many flocks, they haven't even got room for them. So it's, everything that's happening in this section is Abraham's left Egypt, um, which Rashi says, he's laden with stuff. He's got so much stuff, and therefore it's not inappropriate for him to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for that at this altar. So we have reached 925, and we have reached the end of Shani. So I think that is a good place to pause. So I thank you all for attending. Um, and I thank, uh, someone's just put something on the chat. Uh, that's nice, thank you. And um, um, my plan is to give a share next Sunday night. It's Cholamoid, but I don't think that's a reason not to give a share. So I'll be here at this Zoom address at 8.30 on Sunday night. So I wish you all a Chag Sameach. Uh, as we're all saying to each other, it will be a different Pesach, probably for almost everyone, from what we planned. Uh, invariably, it will be a smaller group, but I hope in no way will it be less simchadik and more importantly, no, le no less meaningful as a result. So, Chag Sameach to you all. Chag Sameach. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Rabbi, can I yes. ask, if he was so wealthy, if perhaps he was so wealthy, why did he have to go to Egypt in the first place? Well, uh, because if there's a famine, then you're going to run out of food very quickly. So even if he's wealthy, there is a limit to how long you can stay in a famine situation. That's how I understand it. Fine. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.